As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Genesis in chapter 12. We are reflecting upon all that God is and all that God has done and all that God is doing. And we're in the middle of our Christmas series. We've called it the Promise Keeper. And at the heart of Christmas, it's important to remember that God made a promise that he is in the process of fulfilling. Christmas was really the inauguration of the fulfillment of that promise, and it will one day be fully and finally consummated. And we're tracking through the storyline of Scripture to see how God, in His sovereignty, has planned this story out from the beginning of time to combat humanity's biggest problem. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3 and specifically got into the the fall of man and, and the horror of the curse and how it began to unravel the world that God had once created as good, very good. And as that unraveled, even in the midst of the despair and the destruction, as the curses of sin fell upon the world and everything was changed, God gave a glimpse of hope in the midst of it. In Genesis 3.15, he promised that one would come born of man and woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who had tempted Adam and Eve and led them into sin and produced the chaos that sin had caused over the world. And it's from there that God then began to unravel that promise he made in Genesis 3.15 and bring clarity to what that promise was and what it would eventually become and who it was pointing towards. It's important to see that the very heart of the hope that God gave humanity is a promise that he made to them. You know, as a parent, one of the things you learn quickly with young children especially is to limit the use of two little words, I promise. Those are deadly words for every parent. They lock you in and hold you down. You see, if there's anybody who expects you to faithfully fulfill a promise, it is a young child. They won't, strangely, won't remember what you told them to do five minutes ago, but they will remember what you promised five days ago, five weeks ago, even five years ago. They'll even, uh, from time to time, as they grow and get a little bit more crafty and clever, they'll use those words to try and manipulate you into thinking that you promised something that you didn't, right? Your kids ever try that with you? Uh, Dad, you promised to do that. I did? I'm pretty sure I'd remember that. If you break a promise, well, forget about it. You're going to hear about it over and over again. And listen, if you break a promise often enough, pretty soon, your promises mean very little. It's just fascinating to watch how children cling to promises that are made to them, promises that are made. It's as if their life depends on the fulfillment of that promise. But you know, when it comes to Scripture, when God the Father makes a promise to His children, that's exactly the intent He has in His heart and mind. He makes a promise to His children, and He longs for them to cling to that as if their very life, even their soul, depends upon it. You see, it's that promise made by a faithful God that provides hope in the heart of humanity. It drives their existence. It drives them through especially the difficult times. It gives them something to cling to when everything around them feels like it's unraveling. 
Hope is the thing we cling to when life is falling to pieces. Hope for a, a better day. Hope for a change in circumstances. But when it comes to the follower of Jesus Christ, we cling to a greater hope that is offered in the promises of God. The first thousand years of human history is captured in just 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11, a thousand years of human history. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter 12 and it begins to zero in and unpack only decades of human history over dozens of chapters. The first 11 chapters records the creation and the fall of humanity. It records, as we saw last week, the total unraveling of the cosmos and the downward spiral of sin on the earth. The entire picture of verses 1 to 11 is just how wicked humanity is becoming, how destructive sin is. And it leaves us wondering, as you read through those verses, is there any hope for the world? Is there any hope that this is going to get better? Is there any hope that this problem of sin is actually going to be fixed? We get all the way to chapter 11, and all of a sudden, all of the nations of the earth are one nation at the time, and they're all standing in total rebellion against God. They're trying to build a tower in a city called Babel. Their desire is to make their name great. It is to diminish the value of God. It is to establish independence from God. It is a declaration from the people united together. God, we don't need you. We're fine without you. We can be God. It's the very sin of Adam and Eve, repeated again, but en masse. All the world united in the rebellion against God. Again, you're left thinking, is there any hope for the world? God sees man's attempt to unite against him In their futile attempt, they try to build a tower to establish their greatness. The Bible tells us in a mocking way in Genesis 11 that God looks down at the tower and and he can't really see it. He has to come down off his throne in heaven to look at their puny little tower. Isn't that cute? And as a judgment upon them in their effort to unite against him, he actually confuses their language so they can't understand each other. And then he begins the process of spreading them, listen, across the face of the earth. Listen, here's what happens. All the nations begin to form. Nations apart from God. Nations in rebellion to God. Do you see this? Rebellion is covering the earth. And it's right then and there in the midst of that full-scale rebellion that God zeroes in on one man. It's as if this one man is standing in opposition to all the world. And God calls this man out of his own sinful, wicked past. It's a man by the name of Abram in chapter 12. And God makes a promise to him. You see, the God of creation is a promise maker, and the God of creation is a promise keeper. And he gives humanity hope through these promises that he calls covenants. And the first One is seen here in Genesis 12, and here's what we see, that the promise that God makes is the promise of reversal, the hope of blessing. The hope of blessing. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, look at it with me. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
It's here that we remember the hope that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. In the midst of the darkness and the destruction of sin and the rebellion of sin, God pulls us all the way back to that promise in Genesis 3.15. The promise that God would undo what man had done in the garden. And the unfolding of this promise comes by way of a covenant with a man named Abram who would soon become Abraham. Now, you may be asking yourself this question, what exactly is a covenant? We talk about the covenant of marriage, and we use the term covenant in a few other other different settings, but a covenant, biblically speaking, is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. You can think of a covenant like a promise on steroids, okay? It is the greatest kind of promise you can make to another individual. It is not simply a contract that binds you together because it is far more intimate than that. It is not simply a promise you make with no consequences. It is deeper than that. It implies a set of boundaries, an establishment of both blessings for adhering to the stipulations of the covenant and also consequences for violating the stipulations of the covenant. It was ratified in a number of different ways, but the seriousness of the covenant was often demonstrated in the ancient Near East by taking an animal and cutting it into pieces and spreading the pieces on either opposite sides of one another, and the two individuals would generally walk between the two pieces to ratify this covenant. In essence, what they were saying is this, so may it be done to me if I violate this agreement in this covenant relationship. I, I die, I should be cut up into pieces if I do not do what I say I'm going to do. Incredibly serious. And here what we see is God is going to enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham. And you have to see, though, that this is flowing out of that history that we just went through in Genesis 1 through 11. The the depravity of man, the destruction of sin, the hopelessness and despair, and the, the, the longing, the craving for things to be set right, for what was done wrong to be utterly and totally reversed. It's right, I think, to see Abram or Abraham as a new kind of Adam, representing a brand new beginning, somewhat like Noah was before him. You see, Adam introduces curses to the world by virtue of his sin. Up to this point in Genesis 1 through 11, the idea of the curse, the word curse is used five times up to this point. And all of a sudden, right here with the introduction of Abraham, did you notice the word that's mentioned five times? Blessing. That is not coincidental and it is not accidental. God is making a definitive statement that he and he alone is in the process of reversing the curse that was destroying the earth. The curse that descended upon the world through Adam would be reversed through Abraham and you'll notice here through Abraham's family. Now, Genesis 12, 15, and 17 all speak about this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Just for the sake of time, we're going to look mainly here at chapter 12, but if you want to look more in-depthly at this covenant, look at chapters 15 and 17 later. All of them, however, speak to the clarity of the promise that God makes with Abraham. And the promise, as we see here in these first three verses of chapter 12, essentially is made up of three components. The first one is very clear in verse 2 there. It's offspring. Notice what he says. He says, and I will make of you a great nation. 
The very essence of a nation requires that God would produce and provide offspring from him. The second component is land. And we see that there. He's taking him out of his land and he's leading him towards a new land and a better land, a land that he is going to give to him and to his offspring as a nation. And the third we see is this, a universal blessings in verse three. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, just, you have to see this in light of where the earth currently is. The nations are spread out now in rebellion. And what God is promising is that the nations that are cursed are actually going to be blessed by God through Abraham him and his family. Full-scale reversal. The idea of nation indicates a people with an organized governmental structure, a political entity. In other words, what God promises to Abraham is a kingdom. See, why is that important? You have to think right back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were the vice regents ruling as kings and queens on behalf of God in their land, the Garden of Eden, to take dominion, walking in fellowship and relationship with their God. This kingdom will be dramatically, drastically excuse me, different from the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of Babel, for it would be devoted to God and it would govern for his glory and for his praise like Eden was meant to be. Chapter 15 recounts that God takes Abraham outside and he reaffirms this promise that he makes to him. He says, Abraham, he says, look up to the stars and, and count the stars. See if you can number them, he tells Abraham. And Abraham says, so I will make your descendants like that of the stars. An innumerable amount of descendants is promised to Abraham. Chapter 17 says that he would become in himself and through his offspring the father of a multitude of nations. This is talking about the reversal of the curse. It's talking about the reversal of Babel. In chapter 17, I mean, he goes as far to specify in verse 6 that kings would come from Abraham. He says in verse 19 that God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Genesis twenty two seventeen says this on the screen behind me. It says, I, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess, listen to this, this is so important, shall possess the gate of his enemies. You see, the children of, of Abraham would multiply and rule the earth defeating their enemies. Genesis three fifteen. The seed of the woman would be the children of Abraham, and they would rule over the serpent and his offspring. You know, though, what's so fascinating when you look at this story and how God takes so much time to begin to unfold this covenant and even the life of Abraham, it's fascinating to me when you look at this story, uh, how, how slowly this narrative actually unfolds. You see, Abraham believes God, and he becomes the father of faith. He believes that God is going to give him these offspring, these promises are going to come true, and the Bible says that as he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's what saved him, his belief, his faith. But here, what we also see 
is that the fulfillment of the promises that God made to him and that Abraham believed happened so slowly. In fact, Abraham would never actually see the fulfillment of the land promise in his lifetime. He would never see his, his offspring ruling the land. He would never see them as kings and queens in the land. Nor would he see the fulfillment of universal blessings. He would never see how all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. He simply, at the moment God was speaking to him and as he lived out his life in real time, he actually began to hone in on one aspect, particular aspect of the curse. He simply wanted to see if he was going to be able to have a child. You see, Abraham and Sarah, at this time in their lives, they're incredibly old. I mean, like real old. I mean, you don't have kids at this age old. Nobody. And so God makes him this promise that he's actually going to have a child. Uh, uh, you can just imagine the shock. Can you imagine being in your 90s and finding out you're pregnant, right? It's crazy. But this is the life of Abraham and Sarah. But, but at this time, they're expecting this child, and, and God is taking so long to provide in this child, at least humanly speaking. And Abraham says, you know what? Maybe I misunderstood the promise. Maybe my servant, maybe I'm going to die of old age. There's no way I can have a child. Maybe my servant was the one who's going to inherit my life, my property, my everything, and he will be the one through whom God fulfills the promise. And God shows up and says, nope, that's not what I told you, Abraham. That's not the way I said it was going to happen. And then later on, Abraham and Sarah, they, they begin to think that there's no way this could possibly happen, humanly speaking. And so Sarah gets this idea. She says, here's my servant Hagar, and maybe she could have your child, Abraham, and that will be the means by which God will provide offspring and fulfill his promises. And so they actually go through with this crazy plan. And Sarah gives birth to Ishmael, producing all kinds of results, even to this day. You see, while Abraham was the father of faith and he believed upon the promise of God, there were times throughout his life where he seriously doubted, or at least he doubted that God would do it the way he said he would. God had to come back in chapter 17, as we already read, and remind Abraham that I said it was going to be your and Sarah's child that would be this promised one. He would be the one through which I would bless the nations. The seed of the woman would be the children of Abraham, and they would rule over the serpent and the offspring. And here is Abraham, barren and childless, wondering if God will provide, and finally, finally, after trying to take matters into their own hands, God does provide. But God is teaching them a lesson through this, one we need to pay special attention to. You see, Ishmael, the son of Hagar and Abraham, is derived from the flesh. In other words, he is the product of human ingenuity and ability. He is the, the product of human planning and human power, so to speak, rather than the spirit. God's promise was that the son of promise would be born to Abraham and Sarah. And the point of delay is incredibly important to understand. You ever look at that and say, God, why? Why in the world would you drag this out so long for Abraham and Sarah? Why would you move this along quickly? Why would you do this to them? Well, in one sense, it's very simple. You see, God will often do this in our lives. He will put us in situations. He will make us promises that he intends to fulfill, but he'll wait and delay so that we will realize that if it's ever going to happen, it must happen only by the power of God. It's a powerful reminder, listen, that in this moment, he's testing the faith and he's trying to show Abraham, listen, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. How often do we need to be reminded of that? 
The arm of the Lord is not too short, as the, the metaphor goes. The arm of the Lord is not as, it's not as if he's got a short arm. He can't do what he says he's going to do. There's things that are too difficult or too hard. No, the arm of the Lord is strong, and it is long. It reaches into every nook and cranny and crevice of the universe. He has all the power that is needed to do anything he chooses. And the point in this, in this promise to Abraham, is that the kingdom of God that he said he is going to bring about through Abraham is the Lord's, and it will be introduced into the world through him and his work alone. Now, I really think as we look at Abraham in this situation, there are times in our lives that we are just like him. We struggle, though we have faith in God, though we trust God, and we believed in him for salvation and Jesus Christ for our salvation. There are times in life that we doubt that God will do what he says he's going to do, don't we? We doubt the faithfulness of God. We doubt the promises of God. We wrestle with the reality that he says he will never leave or forsake us because experientially sometimes it feels as though he has. We wrestle with whether or not God is a father who actually, as the word of God says, gives good gifts to his children when we ask, when sometimes we fail to see provision or we think we're not getting the provision that we need. There are so many times in our lives where we simply look at our circumstances and our situation and we simply say, this is way too much for God to handle. There's no way he could do this. There's no way he can change this in me. There's no way that he can deal with this sin in my life and the temptations that I experience. And there are sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, there's times in our lives where we hear God, you know, we, we know that maybe somebody, God uses somebody to remind us of a truth of his word and inside we, like Abraham and Sarah, actually laugh. <laughs> yeah, right, that's a good one. And there are times in our lives where we think like Abraham and Sarah that God is just taking too long. I think this is a normal experience for us. God, I've prayed. I've asked you for this. Where is, the, where is it? Where's the, the fruit of this prayer? Why aren't you doing what I've asked you to do? And why isn't my child saved yet, God? Why, why are you letting them continue to rebel against you and destroy their lives? Why is my loved one still sick and in pain and on their deathbed? Why do I struggle with this chronic illness or pain? Why is my relationship in such disarray? God, I've prayed, I've asked, I've pled with you. Why? Why are you taking so long? The simple answer, listen, in there, I, 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 we don't know all of these reasons, but the simplest answer is the answer that God was trying to Press into the hearts of Abraham and Sarah. You see, it's here that God is often testing our faith. It's possible that God is delaying so that you might understand that what you long to happen can only happen by his strong hand. In other words, God will, will allow this period of time to go on beyond what you think it should, and God is doing it on purpose so that when you're at the, the end of yourself, all of your efforts to fix the situation, all of the ways you try to take matters into your own hands, God says, you see, now you're in the place where I can do something and you will realize that it was me and me alone who did it. You say, well, what's the point of that? Why, why are you telling me this? Listen, because your job isn't to control your circumstances, it's to surrender your circumstances. Your job is not to play God, it's to let God be God. 
It's not in the difficulties of your circumstance today, whatever they are. Listen, your job is not to turn to yourself. Your job is to continually trust God. He wants our hope to be found in him and not in us. Let me give you three ways you can do that today. If this is a struggle for you as I trust it is, I, I know it is in my life at times. Let me give you three ways you can work this out in your life even today. The first one is this. Listen, if God's not answering the prayers in your time on your timeline, or you believe God isn't being faithful to your promise, here's what you need to do. First, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Just keep faithfully pursuing the Lord. Keep faithfully reading his word. Keep faithfully being with God's people. Keep faithfully humble before him. Stay faithful. That's what God is testing in you. Do you really believe me? You will demonstrate that by a continual life of faithfulness before me. Secondly, do this. Stay dependent. Stay dependent. Our, Our natural tendency is to try and take things into our own hands. I'll come up with a solution. I'll do it my way. God's not answering on my timeline. Fine. I'll I'll be like Abraham and Sarah. I'll try and fix this problem. And what God is trying to test you in is this. Will you stay dependent upon me? Will you stay dependent? Will you stay dependent through prayer? Will you continually come and petition the Lord? Will you continually ask, knock, and seek for his kind favor and hand? And will you continue to trust him? Stay dependent. Third, and finally, stay hopeful. Stay hopeful. I think this is one of the greatest reasons why people give up quickly. They simply lose hope. They become so hopeless and despairing when things aren't going the way they think they should be. You know, the very essence of a life in Christ, the very essence of a life following God is a life of hope. It is anchored, listen, not in our circumstances. It is anchored in our God who is unchanging, always faithful, always true to his word. Let your hope in God and his trustworthiness, his character, fill your heart and mind and soul with strength, even though you're weary. You see, God can, by the way, often, and he does work in spite of these things in our lives. Isn't that good news? Like, so when we're not faithful, when we're not hopeful, and when we're not staying dependent, God can still work, and he so often does. He did it in Abraham's life. But don't let that be an excuse to not do what God has called you to do. You see, God more often works through these means, through these ways. When we stay faithful, we stay dependent, and we stay hopeful. We see God's kindness in an abundance of ways. You know, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, God has reiterated his promise to the sons of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. Isaac and his wife give birth to Jacob. Jacob gives birth to uh, his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And you see, a whole point in the book of Genesis is trying to teach us something. While it seemed, the promise seemed to be in jeopardy on numerous occasions, God is showing us time and time again that the kingdom will come and that its coming ultimately depends upon the Lord. The reversal of the curse will come not by any human virtue or ingenuity, but by the promised hope of God's blessing. Secondly, notice this, the promise of restoration and the hope of relationship. Here we see God kind of beginning to funnel this covenant down into some more specifics. That this is the way that God's covenants work. It kind of progressively, they reveal more and more. You can think of it like a funnel. The the Abrahamic covenant, that big kind of opening to the funnels at the top. It's very broad. And as God continues to make covenants with his people, he's kind of honing that in and he's focusing it in, zeroing in on different aspects of 
the fulfillment of these promises. And here we see that at the end of Genesis, God's people, you can flip in your Bibles, by the way, to the book of Exodus chapter 19, if you're not there already. At the end of the book of Genesis, God's people are actually flourishing. And you can see that the fulfillment of God's promise is coming into fruition, right? That, that God is making a multitude of, of offspring from Abraham and from his seed. And, and now all of a sudden, they're so large, they're so great, they're so many. They're in the land of Egypt and Joseph has died and a new Pharaoh has taken over. And he looks at all of these Israelites and he says, this is a massive problem. They're getting too big. They could usurp our authority and overtake this kingdom. And so he enslaves them for 400 years. He puts them to work. And the people of God are still left aching for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Instead of being liberated and living in their own land, they're enslaved and in bondage in a land that is not their own. The book of Exodus then begins, and it recounts God's grace in rescuing and delivering his people from this bondage and bringing them into the promised land. You'll remember the stories of how God raises up Moses as a deliverer and you know, the plagues that fall upon Egypt, and God is rescuing his people, and as they make their way out into the wilderness, God is preparing to move them into the land that he promised to give them. But before he does that, he has to establish the relationship with them. He has to let them know how this is going to work, how this land is going to operate. And so he calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of Exodus. And here's what it says in verse 3. It says, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have, been, have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Hear the intimacy there. See, God's purpose was not simply just to rescue a people. It was to bring them to himself. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, of all the earth, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Look over to chapter 20. And we won't go through all of the commandments, but let me just remind you of the first couple at least as God gives the tablets of stone, the commandments etched in by the very hand of God, it says this in chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you, don't miss this, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's reminding them always, and right before he gives these commands, this is so important, he reminds them of how he redeemed them. He reminds them of how he delivered and saved them. And it's on the basis of that reality that he now looks at them and he says, now here's what you're obligated to do. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the very heart of every commandment. I am your God. I am your Lord. You are mine. It's the very commandment that was violated in the Garden of Eden. 
And then he goes on to unfold the rest of what we call the Ten Commandments, and he reminds them that they are to have no idols, that they are to be honoring their parents. There's to be no murder and no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. They are to to, uh, keep the Sabbath holy. And then as you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you see there's a whole bunch of other commandments given, and all of those actually fall underneath. They're really an expansion of these Ten Commandments. But the very heart of all obedience is driven by this one commandment, the very first one, to love the Lord your God above all other gods. Have no other gods before him. So why? Why was that so vital? It's important to see, listen, that his grace and mercy undergird his commands. That what God instructs of his children is primarily to love him because he has first loved them. That's why he reminds them of his grace and deliverance. You know, I I really think it's important to understand this because a lot of people misunderstand the purpose of the law. Many people look at the Old Testament in particular, and they believe that the law was provided as a means by which Israel could earn God's favor, a means by which they could follow and therefore become acceptable to God. It's the way a lot of Christians treat the law, even to this day. If we obey this, God will love us and God will accept us. But it's actually the other way around. It goes like this, that because God has accepted us and saved us, we love him by obeying him. Do you see the difference? The New Testament reiterates this very same reality for the follower of Christ. We need to see that all of this is a response. The obedience to the law is a response. It was never intended to be a method to earn God's salvation. Never. Salvation came first. But you see, the law was provided then. Here's here's what you must be asking. Well, then why? What's the purpose of the law? It was provided as a means by which Israel could maintain fellowship with God. How do we continue to walk in relationship with God? Think of Adam in the Garden of Eden. God gives the law. He gives commands. Adam and Eve obey from hearts of love and adoration, and they remain in the garden in fellowship with God. Listen, the new land that God is bringing them into is a kind of Eden, paralleling, resembling what it was supposed to look like in the original garden. Here is the borders. Here is the land I'm giving you. By the way, it's flowing with milk and honey, and I will be there with you. This is the heart. You follow me. And in this covenant, he gives blessings for obedience, and he reminds them, listen, there there are consequences, just like the garden, consequences for disobeying. This was a way for the people of God to enjoy the relationship with God. And it was a means by extension to show the world how they were supposed to live by who they were supposed to live for. You know, we've looked at this in the last few weeks, but again, this idea of all these laws and restrictions, the whole point was we are separate, we are different, we are distinct from all of the nations who had been scattered and are living in rebellion to God. They're worshiping other gods, not us. We're different, and God wants to identify us as being different because he is different from all the gods of the world. He is the one true living God. And so they were supposed to be obeying the law of God to display the character of God to the world, inviting the world to come and see that their God was merciful and gracious and a God who saves. Even the very sacrificial system that was given in the law of Moses 
was designed to remind God's people that in this sin-cursed world in which it is impossible to obey God perfectly, God has made a way to live in fellowship with him. Our fellowship with God, in other words, is not dependent fully upon our perfect obedience. It could never be. Since sacrifices could be offered for covenant violations, blood sacrifice was necessary, the Old Testament says, to appease the wrath of God for sin. These sacrifices, a constant reminder of the curse of sin, a rebellion against God, but also and more so a constant reminder of the grace of God to spare sinners. It was a reminder constantly that it was a privilege to be able to walk with God in our sin-cursed world. And you know, when I think of that, I, I hope you look at Israel and you can see the privilege they had before them and you can be reminded of the privilege you have. You're a follower of Christ. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, listen, what a privilege it is to walk in the presence of God. You know, we, we forget this so often in our lives. We can go days and sometimes, if we're honest, we can go weeks and sometimes months without even reflecting on the reality that we live in the presence of God and the presence of God lives in us. And I just want to give you some biblical motivation, incentivize you biblically, if, if you will, to continue to walk faithfully with God. You see, God intended his people to walk with him so that they might enjoy the purpose for which they were created, to know him, to love him, to fellowship with him, to enjoy that relationship with him. Listen, loved ones, God has made it so that if you walk faithfully with him, you can actually continually reap the benefits of enjoying a relationship with him. God says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. I'm constantly reminded of this, that God is always inviting us to enjoy him, to find rest in him, to find peace in him. And this is what our heart is constantly seeking all the time. We're trying to find things and latch onto things that are going to satisfy that. Give us that peace and give us that rest. But God wants to continually pull us back to this reminder. Listen, you can have that when you walk faithfully with me, when I am your Lord and you submit yourself to me and surrender in every way to me. But if you're not going to do that, you can't enjoy the fruit of relationship. You can still have the relationship. You just want to enjoy the benefits and blessings of the relationship. You know, I'm always reminded, listen, you say, why do we need this reminder? Because so often we feel a disconnect, don't we, in our relationship with God. But let me just remind you of this. When you don't feel the presence of God or you don't feel like God is near, it's not because God moved. It's because you did. God is always doing what he promised to do. He's always faithful. So when we're not experiencing the fruit of that relationship, it's not because God has been unfaithful, it's because we have been. But let me incentivize you further. Listen, Israel's role was to be a light to the nations. And in their uniqueness, their distinctness, they were to be like a magnet that drew the nations of the world out of their rebellion and into relationship with God. This was the very purpose of the nation of Israel. Show the world that there is a God who loves them. Show the world there's a God who saves sinners. Listen, church, let me remind you, there is a world around us that desperately needs you and me to be walking faithfully with our God. 
They desperately need to see you. Listen, they need to see you walking faithfully with your God in close proximity, in relationship with God, obeying his word, loving him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because when you are, listen, that is a magnet that pulls them out of the darkness of sin and towards the light of Jesus Christ. This is what God uses. This is always, see this from scripture, from times past, ancient days. This has always been the plan of God for God's people. So walk faithfully with God and reap the personal blessings and walk faithfully with God and watch how God uses you as a light to the nations. But you see, the problem with Israel is that this proved utterly impossible. You just start reading through the Old Testament and what you see is they, they continually abandon God again and again and again. They rebelled and they went back to their evil, wicked ways. They didn't keep the law. They had constant mission drift, idolatry, immorality, and all the while, God had told them what would happen if they did. And so God, true to his word, fulfills the curse that he said would happen, and they are pushed out of the land and into exile. And the picture we have throughout the Old Testament, even under this Old Covenant, is that sin still reigns. Sin, sin still has dominion. The law is not actually saving anyone. It's exposing everyone to who they truly are. And so God gives this third covenant and it's this promise of relief, the hope of righteousness. Again, funneling these covenants down, we move in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not too much further um, in your Bible. If you get into Kings and Chronicles, you've gone too far. But in 2 Samuel, one of the things we see here is that God wants to actually reveal more of how he's going to undo and break the hold of sin. So God establishes this covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And we can look at it together. Look at verse 8 with me. David had this idea that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He saw that God was living in a temporary dwelling place, the tabernacle. That's where his presence dwelt amongst his people. David had conquered Many nations, they were living in the land, and he thought that it would be a great idea to build God a permanent home, a temple. And God looked at David and he said, David, you're not the man to do it. Your hands are covered in blood. You're a man of violence. And instead, here's what he says to him. Now, therefore, in verse 8, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest, listen to this promise, from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a beautiful promise that God gives to David. You see, Saul was David's predecessor and the first king of the nation of Israel. But God had rejected him as king because of his failure to trust and obey God. David, however, was so different than Saul. There are polar opposites. He is defined in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. As a king, he stands out for his trust in and obedience to the Lord. His story is one of confidence in the Lord. But most importantly, it's one of a longing for the glory of God. From a young age, he's removed as being a shepherd and brought to the front lines on the battlefield. He witnesses the Philistine army mocking the Israelites, but more importantly, he listens to this giant of a man named Goliath mocking the God of Israel. I don't know what you've heard about the story of David and Goliath, but you need to understand this. At the very heart of that story is a longing and a passion for the glory of God. Over and over again, David hears this Philistine defying the God of Israel. His heart burns with zeal for the glory of God. How dare anybody talk about the Lord God Almighty like that? He longed for this God to rule and reign. He longed for the righteousness of this God to be on full display. That was at the heart of David. 2 Samuel 7 gives us these details here where God looks at David and says, David, you can't build me a house, but guess what? I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be an everlasting house, an eternal dynasty. Can, can you just connect the dots? An eternal kingdom. It's going to be Eden, restored. The Davidic king will be the means by which the promises of this land that God promises and offspring that he promised Abraham and the worldwide blessing that he promised him is, is by this Davidic king that all of this will be realized finally. You see, Adam and Eve were called as priest kings. And those that were made in the image of God to rule the world as God's vice regents, they were king and queen, and they were to rule and exercise dominion under God's lordship, but their rebellion against God brought only misery and death. And at that point in time and throughout the scriptures, sin appears to be victorious. Sin appears to be winning the battle, but God has promised that he will bring relief The tyranny of sin will not dominate forever. It will not rule and reign. And eventually its destructive power and influence over the universe will be destroyed. And if you want to read just a remarkable recounting of what this looks like, let me just give you a taste. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this in Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's right back to Genesis 3.15. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. 
May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. The enemies are going to be licking the dust because of this Davidic king. There is going to be victory over the greatest enemy of all, the serpent, Satan himself. Victory equals relief for the universe. The prophets looked forward to the day when a new David would come, when the son of David, the royal child of David, would grace this earth. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, in the spirit of Christmas, let me remind you where this is all leading us to. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, the writers of scriptures, they they longed for this day, and the longing was only increased as they looked at the curse of sin on the world. The prophets, the writers, those who wrote of the history of the rise and fall and the the fall and the fall and the fall of every successive king virtually in the nation of Israel, they all looked at the, the destruction of sin and they grieved over the sinful rebellion and they grieved over the apathy of God's people They looked at God's people and they they were constantly rebuking them and reminding them, don't you see? Don't you see what you're doing? It's so sad to read the, the, the testimony of scripture by the people of God, how numb they became to sin, isn't it? It's constantly running back to idolatry, constantly running into immorality. I mean, I mean, just they had to be stunned out of their apathetic approach and their lack of grief over sin, I really believe with all my heart that we have the same tendency that they do. We're so soaked in this sinful culture, wickedness and immorality and perversion and injustice and unrighteousness. They're so pervasive in our culture, sometimes we're drifting into it and we're surrounded by it and we don't even see it anymore. It's just like becomes normal. Dulling our sensitivity to sin, dulling our grief over sin, and I believe there needs to be in the life of every believer and in the life of every faithful church, listen, a revived sense of grief over sin and a a revived hatred of our own apathy over the sin in our lives. There needs to be a heightened sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is an affront towards God. God hates the sin. You see, only when we grieve, truly grieve over sin, will we truly long for relief from sin. And for too many, sin is no big deal. It's just no big deal. Could you imagine seeing your child standing in the middle of the 401, and you as a loving parent looking at your child and saying, what are you doing? And they look at you and say, it's no big deal. Or they, they pick up a, a cup 
that's laced with poison and starts slugging it back and you cry out, stop, you're killing yourself. And you, they look at you and they just say, nah, whatever. Or you look in the eyes of someone who is destroying their life and you plead with them, what are you doing? And they simply look back and say, you know what, this is what makes me happy. You see, the rule of sin is oppressive and life-destroying, and the damage caused by sin must begin to once again grieve our hearts. We need a revived hatred of sin, of personal sin. You need to look at your own heart, and there needs to be a hatred of the sin that's there. You need to look at your relationships and be, be hating the sin that is causing friction and division and strife. You need to look at the world around us and hate the sin that has corrupted it. But you see, we can't grieve sin if we love sin. We can't be righteously angry with sin while we are secretly cherishing sin. God is calling us to get rid of the filth in our lives, to get rid of the sin. He's always calling us towards purity and holiness. So let me give you three simple, quick ways you can do this today, right now as we even prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning. Listen, you can start with this, call sin, sin. Stop calling it a mistake, an error, bad judgment, an accident. Call sin what it is. Call it sin. Look it in the eyes, look it in its ugly face, and call it what it is. It is sin. It is full-fledged rebellion against God. And then, secondly, confess sin is sin. Go to the foot of the cross. Broken over your sin. This is a great morning to do that. This, listen, you need to go to the foot of the cross. If you're saying, like, I just, I'm not broken over my sin, you need to get your face on the floor and your knees on the ground and beg God to break you of your sin, and you stay there and don't move until you're weeping over the state of your soul. You want to see true change in your life? That's where it begins. When there is a holy hatred of sin, every fiber of your being infused by the Holy Spirit is screaming, get this sin out of me. That's when you start making progress for the things of the Lord. And the third thing you need to do, if that's the case, if that's what's happening in your life, the third thing is going to be very simple. Ruthlessly put that sin to death. Refuse to walk in it any longer. Turn back and fix your gaze upon the Lord who destroyed the power and the curse of sin on the cross. Put your eyes on him and see the love of God that is showered upon you. Run to him. Run to surrender to him. Run to the joy that's found in him. Flee the immorality of your life and enjoy the blessings and the presence of God. You see, the longing for this Davidic king was a longing to put to end the rule and reign of sin once for all. And listen, church, that day is coming, but that Davidic king, King Jesus, needs to be ruling in this way in our lives right now. This battle will not last forever. Sin will not have the final say. All of the prophets look towards this king who is going to put an end decisively to this sin. And finally, that leads us to this fourth point, the promise of recreation, the hope of eternity. You can turn into Jeremiah 31 as we quickly consider where all of this is pointing towards. 
this new covenant deals with the core issue that the other covenants couldn't fully deal with. It fully eradicates and deals with the curse of sin. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is the banner passage on the new covenant in the Old Testament. Here's what it says. Read with me in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, the very heart of this covenant is that God will fully and finally deal with sin and its curse. The flaw of the old covenant is that Israel failed to keep its stipulations. Actually, the flaw was Israel's inability to keep its stipulations. The law simply exposed their sinfulness. It exposed the holiness of God and the continually brokenness of man. Have you ever made something? and looked at what should have been the finished product to think, well, that didn't turn out so well. And the only thing you can do to remedy it is to throw it away and start from scratch. There is a sense in which humanity in this world is so devastatingly broken by sin that the only way God can make it right is by taking it and fully recreating it. The only way he can take our sinful hearts that are bent in on themselves, bent in on sin, is to take that heart, rip it out, and make it a brand new heart that beats with different passions, with different longings, with fulfillment and joy in God. You see, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables the people of God to keep God's laws. Ezekiel 36 You don't have to turn there, but let me just read you the kind of cross-reference passage here. Verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my law. The failure to obey that began with Adam in the garden is remedied by the new covenant And it's remedied by the forgiveness of sin. It's remedied by the breaking of power of sin. And it's remedied only through the cross of Jesus Christ because he is the one to which all of these covenants point. Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians 3 that something new has to be created within us. He says this to them. He says that uh, I will show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God wants to take our hearts and fully recreate them, regenerate them, infusing them with true spiritual life. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know the Lord 
under the new covenant. The new covenant represents the fulfillment of God's covenants with his people. Jesus, you see, established the new covenant by his blood, he would say, because he is the fulfillment of the law, perfect obedience. He is the true Israel in perfect obedience to the law of God. He is the great high priest who mediates man and God. He is the perfect lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. He is the prophet that is greater than Moses. He is the greater David, who through his triumph over sin and death on the cross is reigning right now from heaven in the church and in the present evil age. And he will one day come back and consummate that rule on earth. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the second Adam, the Bible tells us. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He is the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. He is the promised one, the hope of the covenants, the solution to sin. He's the savior of the world. And I, I cannot, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I wrestle with my own sin, the more I see sin in this world destroying people I tell you, I just, I constantly find my heart gravitating back to Revelation 21. The, the picture of what, what it's going to be like. You ever get discouraged by the things of this world? Get yourself right to Revelation 21, and you take a look and be reminded of what this world will one day be like when Jesus returns. You want to talk about a full recreation from the hand of God and by the grace of God? Revelation 12, just listen to this in light of all that we've looked at, of the scope of human history and the grand plan and design of God it says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be them, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can you see the unfolding plan of the great promise keeper? The greatest hope of all has always been a salvation that led to an eternity which was freed from the power, corruption, and consequences of sin. A full recreation of the human heart, pointing us towards a full recreation of the world and a full recreation of the entire universe. And so as we consider the cross this morning, consider the magnitude that, of the promise that God has made the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Hear these words fresh this morning, and may they have new and maybe deeper meaning for you this morning. Behold, I am making all things new. 